I don't know if you all remember, maybe a Sunday or two ago, I prayed and asked to be in the reserve choir. And I noticed that they've started to pull people out of the reserve choir. So I prayed and said to the Lord, I changed my mind. I don't want to be in the reserve choir anymore. <laughs> Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your presence today. We thank you for the sweet Holy Spirit. We thank you for touching all of our hearts this morning, causing us to increase in our love for you and for one another. Let the word, God, that's spoken today change us into your image in a greater way. Bless the pastor in Jesus' name. Amen. There we go. All right. Well, today we, we wrap up our... It's been a 16-week series, guys. We have hammered through 16 weeks of a series called Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. And we have gone through some incredible stories in the Bible uh, that teach us so much about who God is, who we are, how we connect to him, how we relate to him. And today I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, Our series was called Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. And today I want to wrap it up by welcoming you to the adventure, uh, by really letting you know that you and I are part of this amazing adventure in the story of God. We are like Moses, like Esther, like Noah, like Job, like Jonah. We are, one of, we are characters in God's story. And I want us to understand ourselves in connection with this vast, unrolling, eternal story of God. We're not just segregated, living out our lives with an isolated deity that's somewhere off in the sky. We are part of God's story that has been unfolding for all time and will continue to unfold for eternity. And that's who we are. We're going to start next week in Ephesians, going through the book of Ephesians. And we're, this, that series is really about identity, about who are you. The, the, the letter from Paul to the Ephesians really describes very beautifully and, and, and poetically who we are, who God, who, how God sees us. Uh, a lot of times we can get a little bit confused about who we are. We can identify ourselves with a relationship or with a job or with uh, our looks or with you know, a failure or with a victory. Uh, but God sees us differently from that. God sees us as we really are. And, and Ephesians tells us who we really are. So I'm excited about that. So today we're going to talk about uh, welcoming you to the adventure and encouraging you to really sort of shift your mind to understand yourself as part of God's adventure. I remember when I was in college, I had two buddies and we would like, we went on these road trips every year. Every summer we would pile up a, a bunch of cash. I worked at a restaurant, and one of the other guys worked at a restaurant, and we'd make tips at night. You know, we'd, we'd work and, and, and make tips, and I had a shoebox under my bed. And in that shoebox, I would just stack up cash, and then I'd pay for my books, and I'd pay for my bills, and pay for food. But I'd keep piling up a little stockpile of cash in, uh, in my shoebox under the bed. And then at, at the summertime, we would take three weeks off, and we would say, Guys, where do you want to go? And it was a guy named Ian Noyes who, who has gone on to become the pastor of uh, First Presbyterian out in Berkeley. And Brett Foster, who is now a, a professor at Wheaton. Uh, neither of them were so distinguished uh, at the time, back, back in college, I assure you. Uh, I have stories, but I won't tell them. Um, 
And so the three of us every year would get in the car and we'd say, where do you want to go? And we would say, well, how about the Northeast? That would be our destination, the Northeast. And part of the joy of this adventure, part of the joy of our journey was that we had no idea where we were going. We didn't know exactly how we were going to get there. We didn't know who we were going to meet when we got there. We just knew that we were going to start heading that way and see what happened. And I'll never forget one of the (laughs) most memorable moments for me in one of our journeys was our Southwest trek. And we got in the car. We were in the Southwest. We were just roaming around in the Southwest. And what we would do is we would roll into a town. We would ingratiate ourselves with the locals. And we would end up being able to crash on somebody's floor. We were very easy, easy going. We didn't stay in hotels. I think we stayed in one hotel in three years. And that was when we were in New York City. And we literally, we hit like every person that we even remotely had some acquaintance with. And they all turned us down. So we ended up getting a hotel. But we were on our Southwest trip, uh, leg of the trip, and we're, we were driving along, and I remember we were somewhere in Nevada, and the last thing I remember, because I was in the passenger seat, and I was tired, it was late at night, is Ian was driving, Brett was in the back seat, Ian says, looks out the passenger window, and he says, look guys, there's Reno, so we look out, and sure enough, there's the skyline of Reno, that's the, really the last thing I remember, the next thing I remember is hearing a very stern, authoritative voice saying, Sir, sir, sir. I, op- I kind of open my eyes. I'm still really groggy, half asleep. And I kind of look over, and there's a police officer with his head in the driver's side window saying, Sir, sir. I, I kind of tried to take it in, you know, but I'm a heavy sleeper. I kind of tried to take it in. I saw that we were parked along the side of the road. I saw that there was sort of a steep drop-off to our right. There were these very steep red cliffs to our left. And there's this police officer saying, Sir, sir. I glanced into the back, and Brett, my buddy Brett, is asleep in the back. And Brett had this very odd, odd trait when he slept, and that is he sort of had these weird convulsions. He would sort of look like he was being stuck with a cattle prod about every 20 seconds. He would just jerk and flutter around. So the officer's looking in the car. There's no one in the driver's seat. Looks in the car. Brett is back there fluttering around in his awkward way. I'm sitting there. You know, this is when I wore my hair longer. And, 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 and so I kind of, at night, it just kind of, I don't know if any of you. But it was sort of between, I would say kind of between, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass and, and Kramer from Jerry Seinfeld, somewhere in, somewhere in there. And so I'm looking at the officer. I don't know where we are. He's, tra- he's saying, what are you guys doing here? And I, I really don't know. But for some reason, I feel like what I need to do is get out and explain to him. So I get out of the car. Now, I don't have any shoes on, so there's gravel along the side. So I've got, I'm groggy. The hair's sticking out. I'm crumpled, like trying to walk. I'm bumping up against the car. The officer's doing this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. This is not a good thing to experience. Sir, that's far enough. Sir, that's far enough. You know, with the hand back like this? Finally, Ian comes bounding up the side of the hill. Apparently, he had decided to stop uh, just north of Sedona and go down and take a dip in the river. So he comes up, and he's all refreshed and looking wholesome, and he says, oh, hello, officer, you know. And he explains to, to the officer what was going on. The officer is like, all right, guys, you know what? Just pack it up. I don't know what's going on here, but pack it up and keep on moving. So adventure, this is what we love. You know, every, every, every time we would go on one of these trips, we would experience these amazing adventures. 
And the joy of that is something that I just carry with me all the time. And I think that all of us, all of us in our heart, we desire adventure. We desire to be a part of something that involves risk, that involves potential danger, that involves uncertainty, but that is bigger than ourselves, something grand, something grandiose, something big, something beautiful. And I believe that God is calling us to that through the scripture. I believe that God is calling us to something more than just a humdrum, gray, monotonous loop of a life. He's calling us to something big. He's calling us to something grand. And he's calling us to, to, to an epic adventure. I mean, if we just look at the people that we've studied over the last, you know, 16 weeks. Look what he did with, with, with Noah. You know, he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. I want you to do something big. Noah didn't understand why. Noah couldn't, couldn't begin to comprehend what it was that God wanted him to do and why he wanted him to do it. And yet he jumped in. He committed. He went for it. And God used him in this very powerful way. And I think God over and over is calling us, if we are sensitive, to participate in something bigger, grander, more beautiful, more magnificent than just our average humdrum everyday life. Amen? If you look at, 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 at what Jesus said to his followers in John 14, look at this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus is telling us, telling his followers, I want you to be a part of this epic adventure that I am ushering in. This kingdom that I am ushering in. I want you to be a part of it. You're going to do greater things than even I do. And that's the, that's the adventure that I want to be a part of. I, I, re- I really do. I really want to have a life that has some real impact. Some real meaning. Something powerful. I, I don't want to just be a person who kind of floats through life. Punches in my life card. And then it's over. You know, and I don't think any of us want that. And we don't have to have that. I think that if we, if we really become followers of Christ, if we really take him seriously, we can have a life that is just packed with meaning. So how do we begin this adventure? How do we start on this adventure? How do we begin to lead this life that is far more than just an average life? And one thing that, that, that Christ teaches us and all these scriptures teach us is that he wants us to commit our mind, body, and soul to Christ alone. Commit your mind, body, and soul to Christ alone. Following Christ is an all-in proposition. Jesus does not say, hey, I want you to, you know, kind of make sure that you slice off about an hour and a half for me every Sunday. And that's what I want you to do. No, Jesus says, I want you all in. I want my, I want me, I want myself to be the first and foremost thing in your life. I want God to be the absolute most important thing in your life. And then everything follows from that. Uh, Rebecca and I have a friend who uh, has relational commitment problems. Um, she, she will remain nameless. But she has this, this, our friend has this inability to make a commitment. The irony is, the thing she wants the most 
The thing she wants the most in life is intimacy and connectedness. She wants marriage. She wants a family. She wants, she wants the whole thing. But every time the possibility of that arises, somehow or other she sabotages it. Because there's a deep-seated fear about what will happen if she makes a commitment, right? The, uh, the, sad, the sad truth of the matter, though, is the thing that she wants to m- the most is thwarted by her fear of losing that thing. So the, the, the reason she doesn't want to commit is because she's afraid that if she commits, she'll lose the intimacy and she'll lose the connectedness that she wants. But by not doing it, by being afraid to take that commitment, she's lost the intimacy and the connectedness that she wants. Do you understand? There's a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's a fear that's, that's holding her back. In, in uh, 1987, a couple authors, Stephen Carter and Julie Sokol, coined the term uh, commitment phobia. Uh, and it just sort of caught on in the popular culture. They actually wrote a book called Men Who Can't Love. And then they discovered that there were actually women who can't love too. And so they called, they, they called their next book, He's Scared, She's Scared. <laughs> um, and what they have found is that people who struggle with this commitment phobia, is that what they have found is that there's been a hurt in their past. There's been something in their past that has hurt them in an emotional way. And because of that hurt, they cannot connect. They cannot take that step again. Uh, a lot of, uh, one researcher put it like this. He said, the irony of commitment phobia is that the subjects crave for what they fear most, love and connection. The more they wish to meet and love another person, the more confused, diffident, and fearful they become. They get trapped in a web of confusion and indecision, which in turn generates a self-destructive pattern of seduction and rejection. The whole experience is emotionally exhausting and devastating. But God knows that if we make the commitment, if we will commit ourselves to him, then the life that he will provide for us, the things that, we've, that we don't want to lose, the things that we want the most will manifest for us. Our lives will blossom. Our ability to love will expand. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But I, 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 I want to just say this. If you've ever experienced like one foot in and one foot out of a relationship, you know that, that relationship is not going to work if there's one foot in and one foot out. If you're on a job and you've kind of like half committed but half not, or if you're in a, you know, if you're in school and you're sort of halfway committed to the program but kind of half not, I mean, you'll never experience any of the joy or satisfaction of that relationship or that job or that program if you're sort of halfway out all the time. Listen to this. This is, this is amazing what Jesus says about this. Now, this is a startling and chilling and stark passage. And I want to just read it out to you and then let's talk about it. And, and Luke, do we have a ringing on here? Can, is it ringing a little bit? Are we okay? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Uh, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him. This is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's an amazing passage. I mean, you listen to that and you go, wait a minute. 
hate your mother, father, sister, brother, right? But then in another passage, Jesus says, you know, love, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, what does he mean, hate your father, your mother? You say, I mean, he doesn't want us to hate people, does he? What he's saying in this passage, and you see it in the context of, of, the, of the whole passage, what he's saying in this passage is, your love for me, your commitment to me, should be so deep and so primary that your relationships with everyone else is, is, is almost feels like hate or looks like hate by comparison. Because he wants you to love him and commit to him wholly and com- completely. The irony is this. When you make that commitment to Christ, your ability to love your spouse, your ability to love your father and mother, your ability to love your children, your ability to love your siblings, your, your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, expands exponentially. So when he says, I want you to, in comparison to me, hate your mother, brother, and sister, he's just saying, go all in with me. And the, the beauty of going all in with Christ is that your ability to love goes from this sort of finite, mortal love to this expansive love that is generated to, through us, through the Holy Spirit, and it's Christ's love that permeates every relationship, even our enemies. You know, Jesus ultimately says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this love that he's calling, this commitment that he's calling us to is so deep and all pervasive and all completely, we're, our, our bodies and our minds and our souls completely soaked in it. And by doing that, we end up loving everyone else amazingly and beautifully with a, with a divine love, not just a, a human love. Does that make sense? Amen. Some of these are kind of hard ideas to, to transmit, but I think they're, they're important. Um, so if you do want that deep intimacy, that deep connectedness with people in your life, your mother, your sister, your siblings, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, put God first. Love God with everything. Commit your whole mind, body, and soul to Christ. And watch what happens in these other relationships. Um, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And, and all these things will be added unto you, right? So when we go for God first, all the other things work out. So how do I do this, you're asking? How do I, how do, I do this? How do I put God first? Well, if you're here, that is a good start. Uh, coming and worshiping God is a, is a, is a great start. Um, it's, it's, it's not enough if you really want to dive into the adventure. And, and let me clarify, this isn't about, you know, to get God's love. God's love comes to you through the, through, the, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is not a works kind of sermon. This is not a, a law kind of sermon, right? This has nothing to do with whether or not God loves you. God loves you when you're sinning. You can be reckless and wild and, and a totally crazy person, and God loves you and wants you and will reach out and save you and pull you in by his grace, okay? So there's nothing to do with your salvation, Okay? Just to clarify, what this has to do is once you've made a leap into Christ, once you've made that step, that commitment, then just go all in. Just go all in with it. Because if you go all in with it, all of these other things will be added unto you. How do I, how do, I do that? Being here is a good start. Repenting, letting your, letting, you know, getting that mental and that emotional, that heart shift, that spiritual shift where you say, God you know what, I, I cannot do this on my own, I need you. 
and, and just sort of shifting, letting God become the primary driver in your life instead of yourself. Um, if you've never been baptized, we're going we're gonna to be having a baptism service. That's another huge step for a person who wants to be a follower of Christ is to take that step and, and, and be baptized. Uh, getting involved in, in the things that the church has to offer, getting involved in a life group, getting involved in the dream team, coming to the growth track. These are just ways that the church will try to equip you to be a follower of Christ. And, but it ends up being an all-encompassing, all-life kind of experience, far beyond what's happening here at the church. So let me just encourage you with that. That's, that's the point number one, is to commit your mind, body, and soul to God. Number two is commit your time, resources, and skills to building God's kingdom on the earth. What does that mean? My dad had this little, little sort of, I don't know what it was. It was, it was actually called a do-nothing machine. Have you guys ever seen one of these? It's, it was a little, little machine that somebody had manufactured and put on his, and it was on his desk. And it had a little wheel like this. And it had all these little gears and all these little pistons. And you would turn the crank and it would go round and round and round, but it didn't actually do anything. And I, I was thinking about that this week because I think some of us think of, even as Christians, we, at least, you know, the way I grew up, there were people that thought this, that as Christians... We're biding our time here on earth until Jesus comes back and then, there's, then that's when reality begins, right? So we're just kind of punching in the clock here, right? Lord, just build me a cabin over in glory land. I'm just going to you know, hold the fort here until we get over there. You know what I mean? Has anybody ever? <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of like we're running, just running on a hamster wheel while we're here on earth. And then, and then it all becomes real when, you know, when, when, we, when we see God. But... That's not the teaching of the scripture. The teaching of the scripture is that your life here on earth matters deeply. Your life here on earth is part of the eternal life to which God is calling us. The kingdom of God is present here on earth and we are building it right here and now. And then it unfolds into eternity, right? Um, I have to share this. When I was a kid, you know, there was so much talk about the rapture. Does anybody, like, there was a big movement in the 80s and I mean, just so much talk about the rapture that, that every kid I know had some experience like this, every kid in the church. I remember coming home one day from, from school, and I got off the school bus, and I walk up to the house, and there's nobody in the house. Right? I, <laughs> I try to, like, open the door, and there's nobody... Mom, mom, go around back. Uh, the dog's there. Uh, okay. And there, our church was just like, I mean, you could see the church from our house. So I go trotting over to the church, and church is locked. There's nobody around. And I'm looking around, and I'm all alone. And so what do I think? Oh, no. The rapture took place. Everybody went up, and I'm just here all by myself. And it's going to be Armageddon, and there's going to be blood up to the bridle of the horses. And my Lord, um, <laughs> traumatized. But I think part of that thinking was the result of believing that our life on earth was just a sort of nothing. It was just like it didn't really matter. What really mattered was the afterworld. And that's not the teaching of Christ. God wants us to be engaged here and now. Because what we do here and now matters. 
It's part of God's kingdom. I'm going to read you this, this parable. I'm going to read you the whole thing. Because it's, it's again, Jesus' Jesus's words are powerful. And they, they hit in this like really amazing way. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I really, I really like Jesus. Like, I'm really down. Jesus, Jesus is my homeboy, you know. And, uh, and I want to go, have you ever read what Jesus said? Because, I mean, his, the things that he says are far more striking and stark than even, like, the things that Paul says in the epistles. I mean, so I'm going to read this, this to you. Uh, let's all read it. Well, we don't have to read it out loud, but it just says, this is Jesus giving a parable. Somebody asked him, what, what's the kingdom of God like? Okay, and here's his response. He says, kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more two more bags but the man who had received one bag went off dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money after a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five the ones that he had gotten and he said master he said you entrusted me with five bags of gold see i've gained five more his master replied well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things i will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of more, of many more things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. He just gives him the one bag back. Back up there. His, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have Even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus does not mess around. What he's saying is, I'm entrusting you here on earth right now. I'm going away. I mean, this parable couldn't be any more clear. I'm going away. I'm entrusting you with what I've given you. And and, in each one of us, we have different gifts. We have different skills. We have different abilities. We have different resources. I'm entrusting you with those. And I want you to use those to advance my kingdom here on earth. I want you to... Don't go hide yourself. Don't Don't go bury yourself in a hole somewhere. Take what I've given you. Expand it. Put it out there. Sow it. Risk it. If you ri- I wonder what would happen if, if one of the, the servants had said, Lord, I risked it, I put it out there, and I, and I lost it. I mean, I have a tendency to think the, the, the master in this parable might say, that's okay. You know, you risked it. You went out there. You gave it a shot, right? But what he didn't want is the person to just go bury it. What Jesus is doing in this parable, he's saying, hey, your life here matters. Use what I've given you to expand my kingdom here on earth. 
I believe that that's what he is calling us to do. Um, the, the former Bishop of Durham, N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant historian, brilliant scholar, and, and a, you know, just a great man of God, he, he writes this in Surprised by Hope. He says, The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless uh, just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Building for God's kingdom. What you do in this life matters. You are a part of God's story. You are a part of God's adventure. And what you do here and now matters. So commit yourself to the Lord. Commit your time your energy, your skills, your resources. Commit those to the Lord and build something great. That's what we're called to do. We're here to transform our community. And I believe as a church and individually, we're doing that. And I, want, I, I, and I envision us doing it more and more. I envision us transforming this community with the gospel of Christ. Each and every one of us, little by little, by putting our arm around somebody, by loving somebody, by helping somebody out. Just little by little, we do this. We change this world, and we bring people into the transformative power of Jesus Christ. I mean, that you bring them to the gospel and watch their life change. I mean, there are people in this congregation right now, yours truly included, whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, 180 turn around. I got an email this week from my buddy, a guy. He's, he listens to my sermons, so, so he'll be listening to this. So... Uh, his name's Raymond. And Raymond knew me, has known me for many, many years. He's known me through thick and thin. He's seen me when I was far from God. You know, this guy knows me, you know, in and out. And, and he's a great guy. And, and he's always been a person that's had faith but hasn't always been living it out. Got an email from him this week. His father had passed away uh, a, a few weeks ago. And his email said, hey, Brent, where do I start if I want to be a follower of Jesus? You know, where, 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 where do I start? How, how do I start? And I can't tell you how beautiful that email was for, to, for me to, to read. And I said, I just, I was blown away. And I said, Raymond, just start by reading, read the book of Mark and then call me. Because that's the gospel of, you know, one of the, probably the first gospel that was written about Jesus. Read the, read the gospel of Mark and then call me. And then we're going to talk about, the, you know, the book of Acts. And then we're going to talk about some of the epistles. And then, you know, maybe Proverbs. And we'll get, we'll get going. He wrote me back about 48 hours later. He said, I've read all four gospels. I read the book of Acts. I plowed through Proverbs. I read Job. I'm, <laughs> I'm reading the epistles. So I picked up the phone. I said, man, what's going on? He said, man, I, I mean, God, God is doing something in my life. Things are changing in my life, and I want to be—I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to go all in. Tell you what, man, I, and and I guarantee you, if he continues this path, that man's life is going to be just transformed in ways that he could never possibly comprehend. Amen. Okay, let's move on to the to, to the final point here. What is the final point in in 
becoming and, 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 and stepping into this adventure. And that is this. Rejoice in the midst of your struggle, knowing that ultimate victory is yours. That's what these heroes and these stories that we've been reading about, that's part of what they did. Not that they didn't struggle. Not that they didn't suffer. They did suffer in very real, meaningful, powerful ways. They really did struggle. But underlying that struggle was a faith and a hope and a sense of joy in knowing that God was with them through that struggle. I would submit to you that, think about this. What is the accomplishment in your life that that brings you the most satisfaction? Just think about it for a minute. What's the accomplishment in your life that brings you the greatest satisfaction, the greatest sense of joy? I would submit to you that whatever that is, whatever accomplishment that is, probably cost you a great deal. It probably, the, the, the struggle that you incurred in accomplishing that goal was likely great, right? Because, you know, anything that really brings great satisfaction, any accomplishment, there's a struggle that goes on there. There's a, there's a difficulty that goes on there, right? That's why we feel so good about it is that we made it through that. I've got a few in my life, and, and one, one that always comes to mind, and, and it might seem trivial to, to people, but I did a summer... I did a public policy institute when I was in college at Princeton. It was a public policy summer institute. It was just a summer course. And one of my greatest accomplishments in life was completing that course. Now, for everybody else in that course, they may have forgotten it by now. It may have been very easy for them. But for me, it was very hard. It was a quantitative course, which was, it was a very mathematical type course. And all my life, I have struggled with math. I have a problem reading numbers. If I, if I put a number in the phone, in fact, I did it this morning. I put a number in the phone. I switched the numbers around for some reason. I just get them all confused. And I, <laughs> I tested into remedial math in college. While most people were cranking through their, their coursework in college, I was doing high school math, and I had tutors, and I was struggling, you know. But anyway, long story short is, uh, I got to this institute, this public policy summer institute, and I got hit with these massive math problems. And I just didn't know what to do. I just, this was one of those occasions where I thought, you know what, this would be a great time for like a very distant relative, like an, you know, a distant relative that was already about to die. Like this would be a good time for them to go ahead and pass on to the other side. And then I could say, hey, look, sorry guys, I can't stay here. I've got a funeral and I've got to go. Or, or, you know, I thought maybe this would be a good time for just a minor injury. Like, you know, like maybe I just get bumped by a car and just breaks like with a small bone in my leg, you know. Then I can say, guys, I'd love to complete this thing, but I just can't do it, you know. I was trying to find a way out. I remember calling my dad, and he was like, Brent, just finish one problem. If, you, if the whole summer you complete one math problem, that's fine. And if you don't complete one math problem, that's fine. Just keep working on that one math problem all summer. Because, just don't quit. Just, just stay in there. Fight through it. Struggle through it. And... Um, Fortunately, I had a really great tutor who helped me out, and I ended up being able to, to complete the course. I actually, I, don't, I can't say I got great grades, but I got, I got it done. Uh, and, and for me, th- there was some huge sense of accomplishment in that because I overcame something that was very difficult for me. And so I will say this, that, that these struggles that you experience in life, rejoice in them. 
Because at the end of them, when you get to the other side of them, you will be able to look back at them and say, I was made stronger. I was made smarter. I was made more secure. My faith was strengthened. It was empowered by going through that struggle. Listen to how, this is how Apostle Paul boasts. And I'm going to close here in just a minute. Apostle Paul boasts in 2 Corinthians. And I love this. He says, listen, this is him boasting. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He says, I I boast in this. I rejoice in this because this is taking me where I want to be. Now, I don't, want, I, I don't want to experience it. I don't have a martyr complex. And I, I don't want to go through any of that. Uh, but if we do struggle in life, let us rejoice in that struggle. doesn't mean we can't have the anguish and the pain and the, you know, the, the grief of the struggle. It doesn't mean that. We can experience all those, and we should. We shouldn't try to deny those. But underneath there, we know that there's a God in heaven that is here with us and that is faithful to us and will see us through into ultimate victory. And to ultimate victory. Why do people compete in marathons, right? Why do they go to the top of a mountain? Why do they climb Everest? Why do they do triathlons? Why do people go back to school? Why do we do things that are hard? Because we know that through the struggle, we are made better. We're made stronger. We're made more like the person God wants us to be. Amen? Charles Spurgeon says, They who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. I love that. Uh, Romans 5, and this will be uh, my last verse. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let's rejoice in this struggle. Let's engage, let's commit, let's rejoice in the difficulties and the challenges, and let's pursue this adventure that God has called each and every one of us to with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our bodies. Because then and only then do we get to see the unveiling, the powerful, the all-encompassing story of God in our lives. That's when we get to see our lives as part of this eternal story. G.K. Chesterton says, An adventure is only an, in, an inconvenience rightly considered. And John Eldred says, life is not a problem to be solved. It is an adventure to be lived. And so now the challenge and the adventure of following Christ lies before you. And the only question that remains is, will you take the challenge? Will you engage in the battle? Will you accept the mission? Will you join the adventure? Will you in your life say, I don't, I'm done living just a mundane life where I segregate my spirituality from my secular life and I, I, you know, I put in a little time over here with Jesus and then I go lead my other life and then I come over here. Just let this thing expand and permeate and take over your entire life. Because then when you're, when you're working, if you're working as unto the Lord... It's a whole different way of working. There was a a reporter that came up to three guys that were on a construction site. And one of them said, the reporter asked them what they're doing. One of them said, I'm moving steel. The second one said, I'm making a living. The third one said, I'm building a skyscraper. 
All three of them were doing the same thing, but one of them got it. One of them understood what was going on. What would happen if in your school you weren't just clocking in and just doing it just to get it done? What if you were doing it as unto the Lord? What if you were doing it for God? I'm not saying all of us have to go out and, and, and be Jonah or Moses, but what if we do, when God calls us to, do, to be on this adventure, he's calling us to do what we are now doing, but with all of our might as unto the Lord. And when we are faithful in the little things, he will make us ruler over greater things. So what if in your school or in your, in your job, you were doing it as unto God? God, I'm doing this for you. Not for my boss, not to make a living, not for no other reason. I'm doing this for God. Your job, your school. What if you did it with your relationships? You know, you did it. You said, God, this is for God. I'm leading out, living out this relationship for God. I believe that if we do that, if we commit to that, and we engage in that, we will see a, 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 a change in our life because we won't just be clocking in and clocking out and going through that gray pallor, that loop of a life that some of us may be on right now. We'll be part of something big, something amazing, something beautiful. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together, can we? We start next week in the book of Ephesians. I cannot wait to jump into that. You don't want to miss that series. It's going to be very, very cool. All about who we are in God and, and, and where we, what we do with who we are. Um, why don't we pray together uh, while we're standing and have the musicians come on up and then uh, we'll sing a little bit. Um, amen. And then, oh, I was going to tell you too, on Tuesday nights, if you have not come yet, turn to somebody. Ra- raise your hand if you've been there on Tuesday again. If you haven't been, turn to some, you know, ask somebody after service who has their hand raised. Say, what's a Tuesday night like? And then just let them, <laughs> let them spill it because it's been cool. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the challenge of your word. These are very, these are very stark words that are coming from the scripture. Uh, and, and they hit us really deeply, Lord. And, and, and yet, God, we trust you. We love you. We want to follow you. We want to follow Christ. We want to be a part of this amazing adventure. We don't want to just lead a mundane, boring life. We want a life that matters. We want a life that counts. We want to be like the servant who went and did something with what you gave him, Lord, so that when, ultimately, when the account is done, we, you will be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. God, we, we just thank you for that. We just thank you for the call to be a part of something big. And God, we ask that you give us the courage, give us the strength, Give us the power, Lord, to accept the call and to join the adventure. Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.